0: Welcome to, if you're not here for a conversation about hell, you're in the wrong place. But you are more than welcome to stay. We're glad that you're here. Um, I'm supposed to be having this conversation with someone. But uh, let's do something. Chris, I wanted to do something real quick. I just think it'd be fun. Um, a survey of the room... We got some really good background music going. How many of you grew up with this kind of narrative? You were bought into this sort of idea and heard something along the lines of, if you were to die tonight. Uh, Yeah, already hands. Um, And the implication here being that if you do not say this kind of prayer, you, are at risk of spending an eternity of being consciously tormented with fire, burning to the end of, well, end of never. Uh, Show of hands, how many, that's something that you had bought into at some point. Yeah. Okay. Now, for those of you who raised your hands, uh, how many of you since, that happened to you uh, have had a hard time with that idea. Similar, all right.
1: Not nearly as many. Not nearly as many. (laughs) So People came tonight to defend that (laughs) view. Apparently. You just set me up for this. Yeah, yeah.
0: So Dr. Green, tear it all down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not now, no, not away.
0: Um, No, here's kind of where I think we can go. there are other options, is that fair? Yeah. And so really part of what I think we should do is let you give us a sort of overview of the landscape, uh, how this idea has developed over time and what are our options here?
1: Yeah, great, cool. we'll do. So let's start with three, three different categories what hell is like what it's like what people who go there experience then why people go there and then where i'll spend most of my time here is talking about who goes there right so first what hell is like you you have some people and this is pretty prevalent in the christian tradition you know 2000 years and this is seems to be true East and west so greek speaking latin speaking church that hell is some kind of eternal meaning endless right there's no there's no timing out right you' it's going to go on forever it's eternal conscious torment and so this is this shows up you know here and there throughout pretty pretty prevalent throughout the tradition that Hell is eternal conscious torment. Now, there's a lot of variation in that in terms of how, what exactly is causing the torment and what is being tormented. So, you know, you can get some who will emphasize that we have, so someone like John Chrysostom, who's an early church father, who talks about the resurrected body of the unbeliever is resurrected so that it's impervious. It can't die, but it can suffer pain. And so it suffers hell eternally and consciously because that's what it's designed to do. It can't die, but it can feel. And so for him, it seems, at least as I read him, to be very physical, that hell is very much a, a kind of physical torment. Your body will be in pain. There are other, others, and this is probably more more frequent in the tradition, who emphasize the kind of mental, spiritual aspect of it, so that hell is conscious torment not in the sense that your body's in pain but that you are your heart and mind are in in anguish because of of hell and then of course you have people who are saying it's it's both and right it's your body and your your heart and mind so that's probably just in terms of sheer numbers that eternal conscious torment is probably the most common view but again understand there's a lot of diversity in terms of how that plays out. And a lot of kind of frightening amount of thought given to it, right? So you have someone like Basil of Caesarea, who's another early church father, who says that the, hell, the fire in hell is black. It's all burn and no light. So the, it's fire without any illumination. And then he says, heaven is the exact opposite. Heaven is fire, but it's all illumination and no heat, no burning. And John John Chrysostom spends, as I mentioned already, he talks quite a bit about how torturous the pain will be for the bodies of the damned. So there's that approach. Then there's another approach that says that what's going on in hell is eternal and conscious, but it ends. And these, these people are called conditionalists or annihilationists. Um, this is a minority view in the tradition, but I see Pastor Mark's back there celebrating. You guys can ask him. He's read quite a bit about this. Um, but essentially the idea here is hell is painful, hell is tormenting, but it doesn't go on forever. It's not eternal conscious torment. It is a kind of short-term, whatever that might mean, and eventually you cease to be. So someone like C.S. Lewis holds a view like this. So he says that hell, essentially your humanity is coming apart more and more and more and more, and eventually there's nothing left. And he says that just like in a fire here, if you burn something at some point, you've burned it up. And he says that essentially hell burns up the wicked, and there's nothing left. And so this is a view, usually those people are reacting against the eternal conscious torment. They they don't want to say that. And so they're they're saying that there is an end to it.
0: Is it a mercy in their opinion
1: that it ends? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and not just, yes, a mercy, but also it's more, I think, in most of those cases, at least as I read it, it's more that they would say if it were eternal torment, God would be cruel. Mm -hmm. Right. That none of these sins deserve eternal punishment. But, um, so I think the argument would be more like that. But still, yes, I think it would be a mercy. And then you would have people who would say that hell is not really an experience at all. That the people in hell don't know they're there. They're not tormented or... in any way suffering. I mean, they, they are in a bad place, but they don't know they're in a bad place. As far as they know, they're where, they're where they want to be. And so hell is is from our perspective, a horrible place to end. But if you're in it, it's not that bad, right? That's the, it's consolation for some of you. And sorry, that was a joke. Why didn't you laugh at any of that? So that you, you kind of get those, Those options, right? And again, it's 2,000 years of Christian teaching, so there are always more options than I'm sketching, but just to give you a feel for what's out there. So the the dominant view, eternal conscious torment, a minority view would be that it doesn't go on eternally. You're, You're consciously tormented, but not forever. Or the view that if you're in hell, you don't really know what you're experiencing. You're so, your humanity is so shrunken, so f- flattened, that it doesn't even appreciate the horror of what you're experiencing. So that's kind of what hell is like. That's what people experience in hell. In terms of why you go, you get kind of different answers. I mean, the, the answer you're going to get in, in the ancient church is mostly Something along the lines of, you didn't become like God. You, that you were called to be like God, and you didn't do that. And because you didn't do that, this is where you end up, right? And you get all this kind of language, like say in the Desert Fathers, who will talk about the, the fires of lust in this life. If you don't extinguish them, they will eventually become the fires of hell. right? So if you don't become like God by destroying your lust then your lust will eat you up and that's what hell is. It's just overwhelming you, right? And, and so on with greed or gluttony or whatever else, right? So th- the dominant idea there, again, I'm a professor, so I'm always wanting to nuance all of this and tell you about, I'll give you four footnotes, but that's generally the, the view in the ancient church. You didn't become like God. Now what you get after the Reformation is a different view a little bit. And that is, it becomes, at least in the Protestant tradition, about whether or not you believed in Jesus, right? Well, you hear that's a slightly different concern, right? It's not so much did you become like God, but did you confess your sins, accept Jesus into your heart kind of conversion? Like, do you believe in Jesus? It becomes more cognitive. Yeah, maybe, I mean, I, again, I think there are variations there, but it, it very much is more around, it's built more around a decision that you make of belief it's much more about belief than it is character, right? So, like in the in the ancient and medieval church, you're you're likely going to get talk about what was your character like? Did you become a virtuous person? Did you become godly? Whereas in the Re- Protestant churches after the Reformation, the, 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 that's not where the emphasis falls, right? It falls on did you believe? Right, right. Keep correcting me. This is fun. <laughs> I'm not doing that, <laughs> right? So did you did you believe and those who go to hell go because they disbelieve. So I'm, I'm guessing that a good number of you heard some version of this, that it's not that people who go to hell are bad people. There are lots of good people who will end up in hell because they didn't believe in Jesus, right? The Years ago, I saw Joyce Meyer on Larry King, and she was sharing some of her story. Her father, if you don't know, her father was an alcoholic. And sounds like pretty terrible person, and then right at the end of his life, he converted, and more or less deathbed repentance, and she was sharing this with Larry King and saying that she was so grateful for that, that God saved her father at the end, and Larry King says, well, I find that offensive, that your father lived like this all of his life, was a terrible person, and then right at the end, called on Jesus and that Jesus would save him in some way, right? And Joyce Meyer says, well, God's ways don't make sense to us, right? That, that God's ways just aren't our ways. So that the, the idea would be, in, in that model, if nothing had changed in him except he hadn't called on Jesus, he would have been damned, right? Nothing changed in his character. He didn't become more virtuous. He just called on Jesus, and that's what's decisive. That's, that's what makes the difference. And this energizes a lot of evangelism, right? The, the idea that you go and witness to people because if you don't, then they're going to be lost, right? If you don't get them to that point of conversion, of accepting Jesus, then they're damned, even if they're good people, right? Even if, and that was Larry King's point. Your, your father was a terrible person. He gets saved because he calls on Jesus at the end. What about all these good people who die and, and go to hell? So you get that kind of emphasis. But in general, those are the two options you get. You go to heaven because you become like God, you go to hell because you didn't become like God, or you go to heaven because you believe in Jesus, or you go to hell because you didn't believe in Jesus. Generally, those are the reasons you end up in heaven or hell. Everybody still good? That was not a good response. i mean a
0: lot of what you're outlining there on the second half is like the thesis of every missions giving letter i've ever read yeah right is like you need to give money so that i can go otherwise these people are damned right yeah if they don't hear right
1: if they don't hear then they can't believe if they don't believe they can't be saved if they can't be saved they're damned right so the idea here is jesus saves us from hell which In a lot of those models, we deserve, right? So a lot of times you'll hear people frame it in that way, right? That you you deserve hell and you're saved from it, right? And so we go and tell people so that they can turn and not burn, as we say. (laughs) Literally, that's what we say. (laughs) Now let's talk about kind of how this all plays out, who, who really goes there. And you got three possibilities. Some people go, nobody goes, or some people go for a little while and then they get out. Those are basically your options. Some people go, Nobody goes. Some people go and then they get out. So here, here's what this looks like. You can, and this does seem to be the dominant view. The dominant view seems to be that God wants to reveal his mercy and his justice. So he reveals his mercy by those he saves and in those he saves. So those who go to heaven do not deserve it. They're saved by mercy, by God's will. But those who are damned do deserve it. We all deserve it. The saved don't get what they deserve. The damned do get what they deserve, and that shows God's justice. So God's justice is to do to the damned what they deserve, and to do for the, His mercy is to do for the saved what they don't deserve, right? And that, at least in the West, that's the dominant view. And the idea here is in the end, God gets exactly what he wants. He wanted to reveal his justice and his mercy. And he did that. He damned those he needed to damn, and that revealed that he's just, and that he won't abide sin, and that he won't abide rebellion. And then he saved others that he didn't have to save. It wasn't, he wasn't obligated to save them. He saved them even though they deserve damnation. And that shows that he's mercy. So he's just, but he's also kind. right? Without violating their will. What's that? Without violating their will, their free will. No, that's not the concern here. In this model, the emphasis is on God's will, not right. human will. Right. The next model emphasizes our will. Right. So in the next model, some people are saved and some people are lost, but it's not about God, it's about us. And this is probably the one you've heard. This is probably what you were taught. And that is that God wants to save everyone. Right? So in the first model, God doesn't wanna save everyone. He wants to reveal his justice. And he can't reveal his justice if he saves everyone. If he has mercy on everyone, then where's the justice? So he he needs to show his justice. And so the way way that in this tradition from Augustine all the way to John Piper now, the the way that people will talk about it is to say, is Romans 9, some vessels of wrath and some vessels of mercy. God can show his justice by destroying the vessels of wrath, Pharaoh, and he can show his mercy by saving those he loves, Israel right so in this first model that we're talking about god does not love everybody the same so if you take someone like thomas aquinas a medieval catholic theologian the most important theologian in the catholic tradition he will say god loves everyone as their creator he does not love everyone as their savior he does not want to save everyone because if he did he could if he wanted to save everyone he could he just doesn't want to because he wants to reveal his justice So that's model one. I doubt we've heard that for most of us. Some of you probably do, but most of us haven't. Most of us will have heard model two, which is God wants to save everyone, but he can't because he won't violate our will. And he will only save those who choose to be. And that God essentially makes an offer of salvation and then people respond to it positively or negatively. And so ultimately these people end up in hell for not believing, though they had the choice. They could have believed and they didn't believe. And these people end up in heaven because they chose to. Now you've got serious theological problems in all three of these models. I'll get to the third one in just a moment. But in the first model, you've got the problem of what kind of God is it, right? Who wants to damn some and save others that doesn't love everyone the same. Like you've got that problem of God's character and so on. In the second model, you've got even more problems, which is what kind of God sets it up so that we have to be our own saviors? Because at the end of the day, no matter how you spin it, if this is about my choice, God's not really saving me. I mean, he's making it possible, sure but I'm the one making the decision. So if in the first model, the people in hell deserve it and the people in heaven do not. In the second model, the people in hell deserve it because they got exactly what they wanted. They chose that. And the people who went to heaven got exactly what they deserved because they chose that. God God made a fair offer. This is what's possible and you chose it. So in the first model, you've got serious issues with the character of God. In the second one, you have serious issues with the idea of the gospel because now we're not talking about salvation by grace through faith anymore. We're talking about salvation by choice, which is something altogether different. Yeah. And that's why all the reformers are in Camp 1. That's why Augustine and Aquinas and all those theologians are in Camp 1 because they can't say this because they realize to say this, it means that ultimately God is at our mercy. He can only do so much, And there are people, and I'll I'll, I'll give you some more examples in a moment, but there there are theologians that that argue that. But often they argue it in preaching, not in their theology or philosophy. So one of the things about the free will approach, the second model, is it preaches really well because it brings you to a point of decision. Right? You need to decide. Today is the day. Right? This, this might be the last moment in your life that you have the opportunity to choose. So it preaches really well, right? because it puts pressure back on you to respond to Jesus, right? to, to respond to the call of God. The problem is once you start to think about that theologically and philosophically, it becomes really problematic. And that's why most of the church's theologians end up in Camp 1, because they even though a lot of the preachers are in Camp 2, but then camp three is the most controversial one. It's why you came out on a Sunday night, right? And that's that nobody goes to hell or that some people go to hell but they don't end up staying there forever. And this can be called, it's broadly referred to as universalism. Although again, there's a lot of, lot of nuance in terms of different universalist views. And in this account, you, you get kind of two different emphases. One emphasis is on the eternity and patience of God. So God is eternal and God is patient. And that means he will wait as long as he has to until you freely choose him. So you're still freely choosing like you do in Model 2. But God is just outwitting you and outlasting you. So he's still the one ultimately saving you. He's just taking however long he needs to do it. So that's, that's the, the one emphasis. The other emphasis is that God, when he appears, is overwhelmingly beautiful. That if, God, if you were to see God for what he really is, you couldn't not respond. Right? Like there was, there's no way you could. So people in this tradition would take something like the Philippians 2 passage I preached from today where it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And they'll say, when Jesus is shown for who he really is, every knee will hit the floor, right? Because there's no way to see him for who he really is and not acknowledge him, right? And so everyone is converted, everyone is saved. And we can get into the, the weeds of who said what, you know, various theologians and traditions, but those are the broad, that's the scope of it, right? So you're, if you're gonna have a doctrine of hell, you're, going to, you're gonna fall somewhere in this parameter of some people go because they deserve it. Some people go because that's what God wanted. Or some people go but they don't stay forever. Or nobody goes at all. You're going to have to end up with one of those positions. And then in terms of judging which one is right, everything depends on how you make discernments, right? How you make judgments, right? So, which one is more biblical? Well, it depends on how you read the text, right? There are Christian teachers who would argue option A is clearly the most biblical. And then of course, others who would say, no, 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 it's clearly option B. And others who would say, no, 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 it's clearly option C, right? And so, Honestly, saying which one's the more biblical doesn't get you very far because it depends on who's reading the Bible and which text you privilege. Right? So there are texts like, you know, the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Well, if you, if you think that, if you read it as a universalist, you say, see, right there, everybody submits to Jesus. But if you don't read it as a universalist, you say, well, they may have to recognize his lordship, but they don't do it in faith. Even the demons tremble. But they don't believe. So it's not just a matter of can you quote texts? I mean, one of the things that will happen, the more you read of the Christian tradition, the more you realize it's not that these people didn't read the Bible. Listen, they knew the Bible a lot better than you and I did. You mm-hmm. do. They, they, are, they understand the Bible. It's just a question of how you read it, which texts you think are the most authoritative, right? And and then where we go from there, right? So the there, there are years worth of conversations around that, but hopefully that gives you a feel for kind of what the options are in terms of who ends up in hell. Where does
0: a, a position like purgatory, where does that land in your scheme? Your scheme? Like <laughs> yeah, it's not
1: mine. <laughs> Don't put that on me. <laughs> um, it's kind of irrelevant, honestly, to, to the doctrine of hell um, except in the case that purgatory is kind of the possibility of being converted or being brought into the fullness of, of the promise, but um, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any kind of. I'm sure Roman Catholic theologians would disagree with me, but I don't, I don't. I don't quite see how one has to lead to the other. And the, so you do have a lot of universalists who have a purgatorial view of hell. So essentially what they're arguing is you go to hell, you just don't stay there forever because sin is burned away in you, right? So like in, in the, remember when I was talking about um, C.S. Lewis's view and other um, conditionalist view, the idea is that hell burns up your humanity. Mm-hmm. In a lot of universalist arguments, hell burns up your inhumanity. So it burns up everything in you that isn't human and all that's left is the human. So it's, uh, you know, it's purgatorial in that way. But I, I guess I don't have a really good, I don't know, I haven't thought a lot about how they're, how they're related. Um, well, that's thats I'll George, think more about it. George MacDonald has that opinion. The, the purgatorial view, yeah. And he gets right. it from Gregory of Nyssa, right? So yeah. I didn't know that. Someone asked me, the the most impactful book I've I've read or influential book I've read, and I, I think it would be George MacDonald's Lilith, which is um, a fantasy fiction. It's like Chronicles of Narnia, and it's about Lilith, who's the queen of hell, being converted. So it's it's a story about how God saves her. And MacDonald essentially is holding this view, which he gets from Gregory, which is hell is what happens to you when you resist God's love. To quote MacDonald directly, wrath is the furthest reach of God's love. So if you you keep running from God and resisting God and fighting God, hell is eventually what happens to you. But because God is God and you're his creature, you and he both outlast hell. You get lots of versions of this, Um, from Gregory of Nyssa I'll give you a few a few examples so one from Gregory is that he says he gets from his sister Macrina that on her deathbed no less I hope I'm talking about these things on my deathbed (laughs) Uh, she said imagine you have a rope caked with mud and you need to clean it but without destroying the rope what you do she said is take a piece of wood and cut a hole in it that's a little bit smaller than the rope, and then pull the rope through the hole in the wood, and it will strip the mud away. And this is what she thinks hell is. It's the stripping away of all the mud. So whatever mud is on you, God strips it away, right? And then Gregory, uh, George McDonnell is just picking that up, right? And saying in his own way that same, that same idea, mm-hmm. right? Um, C.S. Lewis is really influenced by George MacDonald, but then rejects his universalism. And he rejects it, because Lewis wants to emphasize human free will. So there's a famous passage where Lewis says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. The people who say to God, thy will be done. And the people to whom God says, thy will be done. So that's this kind of classic view of who ends up in hell? The people who want to be there. Right? The, but like I said, as powerful as that is and as rhetorically persuasive as it is, if you start to ask questions about what that means theologically, it gets really difficult to defend really quickly. Because for, for tons of reasons, I won't get into them right now. But it's it's really challenging. So the view that you and I know most, I'm guessing again, but that I assume you and I know the best, is by far the weakest theologically. It's the most effective pastorally. It's the weakest theologically. Um, and do with that w- what you will. I'm, I mean, I, I think we, it doesn't have to be strong theologically. I'm, I mean, that's up, up to you, but that is, well, that is the, what we're facing. Yeah. So I'm gonna
0: try to whittle a question out of, out of a few ideas. I think a lot of us in the room, were encouraged by this, this third sort of idea. Probably one that we're the least familiar with, but it definitely captures something in us that feels hopeful, that feels right, that kind of smells like, yeah, that might be something that God is up to, right? Um, the temptation, I think, is to lean into something like that third idea and how quickly it can slip into a kind of nihilism, like the nothing matters, because in the end everything's just gonna get worked out. So what's, what's, the, what's providing the resistance there from slipping straight into a sort of nihilistic perspective? Or is there any?
1: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Um, I'm not sure where to begin with that. I mean, I think the so let me let me just say this. There are really bad versions of all of these positions. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are people that are arguing for option A here, this double predestination, what we know as the Calvinist option, which really isn't Calvin, but never mind. That the, that option, I mean, there are lots of people on TV talking about it in ways that are really shallow and, and fractious and ugly. That doesn't mean that there's no one in the tradition that's ever talked about this in ways that are persuasive and beautiful, just because the person you heard was an idiot doesn't mean everybody is an idiot that thinks this right and there are lots of important Christian like someone like Aquinas, important Christian thinkers who do hold to this view. I, I reject it, but I, I see why they would say that right and same is true of option two and option three and. You, unfortunately, in our current climate, it's easy for someone to appeal to option three because it resonates with a lot of kind of post, quote unquote, postmodern values that are kind of mainstream in different pop cultures. Mm -hmm. And most of that stuff is really cheap and not worth your time. Yeah, right. The George McDonald is worth your time. Greg Reveness is worth your time. Um, Carlton Pearson's doctrine of redemption is not worth your time. But like he is I love of him. He's a wonderful person. But what he has to say about hell, nah, just ignore that. Talk to him about something else. The Like what? <laughs> anything else, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Tell him the story about how I brought him up at the- Yeah, <laughs> we've comedy,
0: got it recorded so. with you. Okay, good, maybe he'll
1: hear this. <laughs> Go. Carlton, read Gregory of Nyssa. Stop talking about it, read Gregory of Nyssa. So, I mean, there are stupid versions that you just, you wanna ignore. And I think think you're probably doing it right if you're able to start to see why Christians would say any one of these three. Mm -hmm. Because Christians, have said all three and keep saying all three for 2,000 years. And even though I'm going to tell you the right answer tonight, you're going to leave here thinking what you want to think anyway. Yeah. And Christians are going to go right on thinking one of these three things. And 1,000 years from now, they're going to be thinking one of these three things, right? Because this, in, in, I mean, there's lots of nuance and versions of it. But, I mean, these are the categories, and they're going to go on being the categories. And we, there needs to be room in us for, for differences. And the... It's a bad sign if we can't appreciate why someone would say A, B, or C, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we definitely want to open this up for questions. Uh, (laughs) I should have known. Who do you think's first hand that went up in the room? Adon. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, And Carter. Yeah. Can, Can I read one thing first, please? So let me, let me come back to that point about option two, which is the free will model that most of us know. So this is, I think this is, this one little piece I'm gonna to read to you now is kind of a perfect example of the strengths and the weaknesses of that approach, right? So what I'm gonna to read to you is from an Orthodox bishop named St. Nikolai. And it's from a letter that he wrote to a nameless blacksmith. So he's, he's a bishop. He gets a letter from the local blacksmith that says, you know, I think we should be saying that all people are saved and are, will be saved. And this is the response you get from Saint now St. Nikolai. You would like for God to pardon all sinners... Are you again tempting Christ just like that enemy of God tempted him on the mountain? If you are the all merciful son of God, have mercy on Judas and Cain and all serious sinners, and I will worship you. This is how you would phrase your tempting of Christ and the Lord himself could respond to you and say, was I not merciful enough when I descended from my eternal glory into human darkness and gave my whole self as a sacrifice? Listen to this part. How shall I pardon those who never asked me for it? Who despised my offered mercy to their last breath? Who spilled the blood of my faithful disciples like water? Who remained servants of Satan to the end? And how is it now that mortal men compare their mercifulness to God's and even think themselves to be more merciful than God? Examine yourself thoroughly and see how limited and vain human mercy is. See if you could easily forgive a friend who swore three times that he does not know you. See if you could forgive a man who has persecuted your relatives with a sword to the point of extinction. That's Peter and Paul, by the way. See if you could forgive a man who mocked everything that is most sacred to you. The Lord Jesus forgave Peter, who renounced him three times. He forgave Paul, who was persecuting his followers. He forgave Augustine, who mocked the sacred themes of Christianity. He forgave all those who repented wholeheartedly and turned their rebellion into zeal for God and God's sacred things. He will forgive at his terrible judgment even those who repented only on their deathbed. Like the story we talked about earlier. Confessed Christ as the Son of God and cried out to him for salvation. He will also forgive those who showed even as much mercy in his name as to give a cup of cold water to the least of his followers. But all of this is not enough. For God's tempters, It is not enough for those who neither know what it is to forgive nor to repent. They do not know how God's mercy overcomes our way of thinking, nor do they know how deep are the wounds of Christ for mankind. They would like for God to mingle the kingdom of eternal light with darkness and for there to be a mixture of good and evil on, on, in heaven as well as on earth. They would like for Cain and Judas and all the fat fratricides, all the godless, all the bloodthirsty, debauchers, lascivious, mockers of sanctity, ridiculers of God, everybody, all the unrepentant evildoers to stand at the right hand of Christ at the last judgment together with the saints, martyrs and righteous, and for no one to be left on the left side. Is that justice? Is it just to give the same way, is it just to give the same wages to those who worked all day? Is it mercy to mix light with darkness, truth with lies, wheat with chaff?" Pretty fierce response, right? And in some ways, at least for me, it's really powerful. Like, there's a, there's, there's a lot of, there's weight to what he's saying, right? And this is like, you're tempting Christ. I mean, do you, do you, do you not think that he's shown mercy enough? And who are you to portray yourself as more merciful than God? Right. But you probably already picked up on, there are two massive problems theologically with it. The first one is notice, this saint, this bishop, assumes that our account of mercy is wrong, but not our account of justice. Hmm. Right? He kept saying your account of mercy isn't fair, isn't right. But how how did he get him to concede that his account of mercy was wrong? By appealing to his sense of justice. So essentially, the problem theologically is you're telling us that human mercy is wrong, but not human justice. And that won't hold up. I mean, theologically, that's incoherent. The other one was, and this is, I think, had to be intentional on his part, and I don't know why he would do this. Saints are crazy people. Did you hear how he ended the letter? With, is it just to pay all workers the same wage? <laughs> uh, Bishop, have you heard of Jesus? Like, that's literally one of the stories of Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. not, not, not close to that. That's literally the story of a man who paid all of his workers the same way. <laughs> and there's no way that this bishop didn't know that. Yeah. So why is he putting that in to this letter? That seems to all be about, how dare you talk about God being more merciful? And then he just ends it with a reference to a parable that's all about God doing what seems unjust. I don't know what, you, I mean, you could say he was crazy. I think, I think he's up to something else altogether. I think he's challenging the man and at the same time saying, but remember, God's ways are not our ways. And that works both in terms of our sense of mercy and in terms of our sense of justice, right? That the fact of the matter is our sense of mercy is off and our sense of justice is off. And we, we can't just rely on those gut instincts either way, right? And so, so I, I think this letter kind of captures a lot of what I would want to say about the uh, second, second category.
0: Yeah. Uh, so a few weeks ago, we happened to be fortunate enough to both be preaching the story of the prodigal son. However, that happened. Um, that we were both preaching the same text on the same day. Yeah. It's like there's, it's like a, there's a, yeah, some kind of,
1: someone should make that, like, a, like a <laughs> compile texts. Mm. <laughs> It'd probably take a few years to get through it. Three, say.
0: <laughs> say three. <So> say three.
1: <laughs> we could do like a psalm, an Old Testament reading. An epistle reading.
0: Yeah. Gospel.
1: We could go on with this joke forever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just burning time. That's right. Uh, so I, I didn't listen to your sermon on the prodigal. I heard it was really good. But one of the things that I brought out was this, this sense of mercy and justice. And that from both brothers, point of view, there seems to be a profound unfairness of the Father. Yeah. And I think especially in 21st century, post-Enlightenment Western civilization, we love to read this story and say, that's not fair. And I think God would be on the other side of it going, yeah, that's not fair. Like with yeah. a smile on his face, right? Like look at the profound unfairness here. Um, speak to how do you see like a story like the prodigal sons? How do you see that story fitting into some of these narratives that we're given?
1: Yeah. So this will probably drive some of you mad, but I mean, I think the, I think one of our problems is we're trying to fight our way toward an agreement, like toward shared opinions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what we should be doing. I don't think we should be trying to get to a place where we all agree about everything. I think the, first of all, I think that's futile, but also I don't think it's, it's not very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we need to kind of cultivate differences. Like the, the, you play jazz, you play blues, you play rock. I mean, let's not all try to perform the same song at the same time, right? And I think the, we need more theological diversity, not less. Yeah. And including on these questions, like, like hell. And I think the part of what, to me, is powerful about the stories of Scripture, I was talking to Rob before we started about this, is that I think the stories in Scripture are primarily designed, Siri is talking to me. She said she gets to call me Cricket. I have no idea what that's about. That's what it said. I get to call you Cricket. She's always listening. Yes, she is. So the... I think the stories in Scripture are primarily designed to provoke us Mm -hmm. and to elicit responses from us. And if you're reading them, so there was used to be, hermeneutics profs would say things like, a parable is a story that has a single moral principle. That's BS. Like that's not how stories work, right? Like there, there's a lot going on in a story. And a story like that, a story that Jesus is telling about a father and two sons, it's archetypal. And so it resonates with a thousand other stories and with your own personal story in all kinds of ways. What I did in, in that sermon was to talk about what haunts me most about the story right now today is that the prodigal stays in the party and doesn't come out to his brother. Yeah. That the, he comes home, he's redeemed, right? He goes into the party and he stays in the party and the father goes out to the elder son. But what's, what you get at the end of the parable, of course, no resolution at all. What you get at the end of the parable is a father who's standing between two sons that won't acknowledge each other as brothers. Yeah, right. The elder won't go into the party, and the younger won't come out of the party. And I think that way of reading generates, I, I think, it generates a way of thinking about our lives differently, right? Thinking about how sometimes I'm the prodigal and sometimes I'm the elder son. And in different relationships, you know, like Saul and David uh, was talking with a friend earlier, talking about Saul and David's story. And, and the truth is we're all Saul to somebody else's David, mm-hmm. and we're all David to somebody else's Saul. And these stories, I think, start to show up that, that complexity. And our theology ought to reflect that kind of complexity. That's my point, right? Yeah. That if we're gonna theologize about hell and heaven and so on let it bear some resemblance to the complexity of our lives that is raised by these stories by these accounts and I think the I think where this comes down at the end of the day I think is what do you think God is really like and what do you think God really wants? And I think we can talk for days and weeks and months and years, eventually, that's the question. What do you think God is really like and what do you think God really wants? And I I don't know that we all have to have the same opinion of that. I I think we all ought to be praying about that and be honest about that and be learning about that but I don't know that we all have to think the same things about that. But I will say this, ultimately, whatever your doctrine of hell is, ultimately, it's because that's what you believe God wants. God wants that. Even if you say people go to hell because they choose it, God had to set the situation up for it to work like that. God had to make all things so that your choice would be what would decide. Which is why I can't hold to that model because I can't believe that God would have made all things and then left it up to me to save myself right that was a bad choice God you shouldn't have done that <laughs> like you need to rethink it um, and I, I I, love yeah I, I love the diversity that's in the tradition I don't I don't want to shut down the differences yeah you know that are that are there yeah I want to shut down the, the stupid versions, but Totally. Not.
0: You were mentioning the, the the brother who didn't come out yeah. of the party. And I think there is a lot of rhetorical weight that we can place on these, that on some level they have to capture our imaginations about, again, what we believe God really wants for the world. And um, yeah. uh, this is just a quick story, and then we'll open it up for questions. So Brad Jerzak, mm-hmm. he tells this story about an Orthodox priest, and he was— mentoring this young man, and they were going around speaking to different people. And this young man was upset because he felt like this priest didn't place enough emphasis on the judgment of God, that they were speaking to people who needed to hear the gospel and he wasn't telling them about God's judgment because it's such a powerful rhetorical device yeah. in order to be persuasive. Yeah. So the priest tells him, he says, let me ask you a question. He said, suppose you happen to find yourself inside the gates of heaven after you die. And suppose you're there with God and you realize that your brother has found himself outside the gates. Would you not say to God, God, will you go and get him that you might bring my brother in to the gates? And he says, if God says no, would you not say to God, well, let me go and take his place. And he says, if you say, know that there's no way I would go and get my brother and take his place outside the gates so that he might have a place inside, then your heart is made of iron and there's no use for iron in the kingdom of God. But if your answer is yes, that you would go and take his place, that you
1: might have solved the problem of hell. Yeah. And that's, that's like classic Nissen theology, Gregory of Nissen. And that's, what, that's where Brad's getting this, not that story, but that, that theology. Uh, and that, that's hugely persuasive to me. But also, I also hear other voices in the room you know, saying you know, difficult things, things that are hard for me to hear about learning to celebrate justice and not just mercy yeah. and what that would mean. Now, I, I have a theological response to that, but I don't ever want to ignore those voices. You know, I, don't, I don't want to lose contact with the people who are saying, but wait a minute to that, right? Um, I'm convinced of what I'm convinced of, but I I don't always like to have contrary voices pretty close to push back on, on that. I think a couple of, I've been reading about Jewish and Muslim doctrines of God, and one of the things that both Jews and Muslims have that Christians don't have as much of is... Uh, protest prayers against God. So we got it in the Psalms, but Christians don't have a long tradition of praying against God, but Jews and Muslims do. And one of the things that, that comes up all the time is hell. And there are two two stories stand out to me right now. One of them is this man, this is so clever. I love this. Um, Medieval Jewish rabbi who says to God, God, you know I deserve hell. But you know that I can't stand to be with wicked people. So let's do this. You take all of the wicked people out of hell and then put me there. I deserve it, and then I won't be uncomfortable with all those other wicked people. (laughs) which of course what's clever about that is that that's the heart of righteousness right I will take the play you know I would count myself accursed it's Moses right it's the heart of intercession and he's playing it back against God another one that I think is terrific is it's very strange but terrific is he prays for God to bloat his body so that people are literally forced out of hell (laughs) Right? His body just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and people are like forced, forced up out of the pit, right? This is a really strange image, right? But yeah. his, the, the image, right, is the, I, I will go for them to be redeemed. And I think that, I think it's important to realize that's not just a Christian instinct, right? That's an instinct that, I, I mean, I don't, I haven't studied all the religions, but I know it's in Jewish tradition. I know it's in Muslim tradition, that the, the heart of righteousness is to intercede, to take the place of the, the ungodly. Yeah. And that, I, I find that really, I don't, I don't know if you find it persuasive, I think you should find it at least challenging, mm-hmm. right? That that shows up in, in all the tra- Abrahamic traditions.
0: I can't get that strange picture out of my head now. Like the violet, you're turning violet, <laughs> like pushing people out of the factory. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was a metaphor, but still. It's pretty strange. Sure. Well, we got to start taking some questions. I'm going
1: to let you point at them. I don't know. Don, I guess, was first, so yeah. we'll start there. What I haven't heard you addressed is why enough. Uh, yes, yes, that's right. i speaking to those who deny health, but if it's there, the Scripture say saying, create it for the devil in thank you, which yeah. lies not for us. Yeah. But why, why yeah, is there enough? yeah I meant to talk about that actually, and forgot so yeah, excellent question. why hell I think the short answer is two twofold one, because that's what some creatures deserve, and it's recompense to them and or that's what's necessary for the rest of creation to be whole to be um, to have shalom right the, the the rest of creation can't have the peace that it deserves if there isn't hell. So I think you're going to get either that argument, those two things paired, or one of those two arguments virtually every time, that people deserve it or we need it for the sake of of the rest of creation. And there's something really, I think, when it's made well, that argument has a lot of weight. It has a lot of weight on both fronts, right, in terms of the you know, the devil and his angels is, is one thing, but also, I mean, there are some really, really, really wicked people in this world. And it's easy to talk about being merciful to them, but how could you be merciful to them knowing what that costs everyone else? Right? I can't forgive you for a wrong you did to someone else. That's not right. and I That's not my place. And even though I think, I mean, I, I have a case I can make. I, I don't wanna ever start to talk about the mercy of God in ways that ignores the suffering of the people who suffer, you know, Stalin or Hitler or whatever else. I mean, there's wicked people who did horrible things, right? And that can't just stand, right? That can't, that can't be left, it's certain, this is why I was saying some views are stupid. The, the idea that God would just brush that aside or act like it didn't happen is insane. Right? like that, it's, it's insane, that can't be right. So whatever we do mean, we, it has to be something that deals with what about these wicked people? Right. And of course that gets really complicated really quickly because all of us are wicked in some way, and there isn't that much difference between Hitler and me, ultimately. But I don't wanna say that in some sentimental way. I mean, I, I didn't, I'm not a Nazi, right? and that has to matter for something. Right so like yes. the it, it gets difficult but i i think there's a lot of weight to god has to do right by the victims and not just by each individual person so how would he do that then the question becomes how does he do that best like what would what would that require and in terms of the rest of creation being whole i i, I again i think that makes all the sense in the world right to say let's say you have if, if God, in some stupid version of universalism, if you, if you had God just saving everybody and then putting us all together again, I mean, that would be irresponsible. Yeah. Like that, that would just be to create the fall all over again, right? So that, that can't be right. So there has to be some, there's a reason the doctrine of hell shows up in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim theology, right? It's, it's not just because there are cruel, cruel people among us, right? There's a reason that doctrine is there. But we just need to think carefully about it. Thanks for that question, because I should have said that earlier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. One of you guys the the one in the cap. Let's do oh, that. Sure. Um, you mentioned the uh, idea of
0: like mercy and justice. And when I think justice, I mean recently uh, someone personally was two different ideas of justice, there's punitive justice and there's restorative justice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and if the third view is right, or some version of it is right, then yes, it would have to be restorative justice. Yeah. That's right, that's right. So So this in, in in good No, I appreciate that. In in good versions of this third model, the Universalist model, the first thing they're concerned with is God being just to all of us and destroying the sin. So the back to the rope being pulled through, right? Or Another model that's used often in in that tradition is at the last judgment when the sheep and the goats are separated, those aren't people being separated, but within people the sheep nature is being separated from the goat nature so the all that in you that is goat like will be stripped away, and all of you that is in sh- the sheep like will be redeemed right um, and and you get this All the way through the church's history some version of that but all of the good versions of this third model are going to make that point that god is just and god justly punishes sin and because god is god he can destroy sin so another thing that gregory of Nyssa, i keep coming back to him but he's the best example i think of this model the he he said that sin is not eternal can't be and god is so eventually That difference matters for us. That sin, so to speak, just can't last long enough. God will destroy it. But sin will be dealt with. The problem with that model, though, is it can't do very well. It often doesn't do very well in explaining what God's going to do about the wrongs that were actually done. So let's say God can destroy lust in you. What's he going to do about the rape that happened? right so this third model has it can very strongly deal with lust like just that sin but it has a hard time usually has a hard time talking about how god is going to to bring justice to things that actually happened in history and not just the the individual heart does that make sense so that's why some idea of punitive justice keeps coming back because how are you going to make that right yeah like you can punish it but how are you going to make it right is it even possible to make it uh yes sir. so you know to, to that point there, how was it made right for Job? Yeah. I mean Job had to figure out how to make it right, right? Job didn't do any of this to himself. Yeah. Right? I mean it's a hard text, but yeah. Yeah, I mean so this this is fascinating because of what I've been reading lately, but um So there are a lot of writers, and they're bold, but a lot of writers in these, in these traditions that will say, this is on God. Ultimately, God is God and we aren't. We're the creatures. He's the creator. And all God has to answer and deal with what has happened here. But most of the time in the tradition, the emphasis is on us. The emphasis comes back to you and me, and God is not to be questioned. There are very few people, uh, and this is just something I've become convinced of. I think there are really immature people who are quick to challenge God because they have no idea what they're talking about. And then there are more mature people who are slow to challenge God. But they get stuck there, and by getting stuck there, they take on responsibilities that they can't actually fulfill. And that a more mature place is the place where you can challenge God, because you trust him to do what you could never do, what what can't be done, right? So someone like um, Bart Ehrman, who was raised a fundamentalist and lost his faith, now is a kind of polemical enemy of Christianity. Um, He wrote a book called God's Problem, in which he essentially said, look at all this mess in history, all that's gone wrong. I mean, this is on God. And he meant it as a gotcha, like, um, everything's wrong. God's going to have to deal with it. Therefore, there must not be a God. But I think people of faith should say, yeah, it's God's problem. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. Right? That, that's how I would respond yeah. to it. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, so I have two. Uh, my first question is, how do you interpret the from God? Okay. So the first one is pretty easy, and that's just every. The, oh, the question was about the banquet narratives in Luke and I mean uh, Luke and Matthew, and where where Jesus talks about the virgins, right? And the door is being shut, and people are not. They showed up too late, right? And the other was a question about atonement and how Jesus' death matters for for our sins. Um, the first one is just everything depends on what you think is happening in that narrative, and and there are so many different possible readings, right? I mean, so one of them would be, it's a straightforward kind of description about the way salvation history will play out, that there'll be an amount of time in which we can respond, and if we don't respond in time, the door is shut. And that's, you know, common reading. I mean, people read it that way. But there are lots of others who read it differently and would read it, for instance, as not about salvation history at all, uh, not a kind of description about how God is gonna save us, but about what's about to happen in Israel after Jesus' death. So that it's a, it's a kind of historical prophecy, right? That what's about to happen here once the door is shut, once I'm crucified, there's no coming back from that. So you could read it that way. Another way that I've seen it read is to say that it's performative, that it's a kind of, you remember in The Matrix, where, <laughs> isn't that great? You like that? <laughs> You guys do Jesus jukes, I do matrix jukes. Wow. So in the Matrix, the the Oracle gives him this prophecy, right? And then she says, But the question is, is this is this have I said this to you, right? Is it true because I said it to you? Or did I say it to you because it's true? Right? So there's a way of reading the those parables that would say, yes, it's about salvation history. And He knows we need to hear the door is going to be shut. I do this with my kids all the time, like literally every day. I threaten something that I don't really mean to do, but I don't know how else to get my kids to do anything, right? If I don't threaten them with death, they don't do anything I want them to do. No, but I mean, more seriously, like we say things like, we're getting in the car and we're leaving now. Well, what we really mean is in four or five minutes, we will leave, right? Right. So is that what's happening in the parable? And those are just three examples. There are dozens of ways of reading those texts, right? This is the thing that was hardest for me to learn, being raised in a Bible-believing church, is the Bible can be read in so many ways. And there are good-hearted, devout people who read the same texts and come to very different conclusions. And we've been doing that for millennia. So... Just throwing a Bible verse out there really doesn't do anything, because all anybody has to do is say, well, but that could be read this way. Um, Then in terms of atonement, you know, you've got the question of, is the atonement truly for everyone? And in the first model I sketched, it isn't. The first model, Christ dies for the elect. In the second model, the atonement is for everyone, but it may or may not work. I mean, in the second model, actually, it's possible that no one would be saved. I mean, God sends Jesus, all that business. But what if no one believed? I mean, that's at risk. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that literally no one is, is saved. And then in the, in, the, in the third account, of course, the atonement is for everyone, and it's ultimately effective for everyone. It, it brings about the, the conversion. This is why someone like Karl Barth who has a very different view from Gregory of In fact, he references Gregory and says, that's all wrong, and then says something almost exactly like it. But the but what Bart does say is if you if you just boldly say the cross cannot convert everyone, then you're blaspheming the cross. Bold. So that's where he comes. Like you, you can't say the cross is for everyone but it's not effective, right? Um, but of course, he's reformed. He's not a free will thinker. So it's easy for him to, to make that claim, given his other commitments. Uh, yes, ma'am? So do mercy and confess have to be separate? Because no. It seems to me like one of the major issues with so many different beliefs about having to help are that people separate the justice of God and the mercy of God. Yes. Yes, and that's one of the reasons that I think theologically model three is so persuasive when it's done right, because it does insist that mercy and justice are one. But not always. So you have someone like Isaac of Nineveh, who's fascinating. Everybody should know Isaac of Nineveh. You should get Isaac of Nineveh tattoos. You should name your children after Isaac (laughs) of Nineveh. Um, He's seriously, he's amazing. I have an incredible man crush on Isaac of Nineveh. But he says, and he depends a lot on that passage in James where James says mercy triumphs over judgment. And he says, at the end of the day, God isn't interested in justice. That's not his concern. God is interested in the reconciliation of his family. And he doesn't care about justice, he cares about family. So even in that third model, you can get people who wouldn't hold them as the same thing, right? So but you're right. I mean that, that runs all the way through the Christian tradition where people will insist that they're identical, mercy and justice are one, The two names for the same reality, or that they're very different things. Um, and, you know, that quickly gets into talk, talk about the attributes of God versus the work of God in the world, right? Is justice an attribute of God, or does that describe something about the way God engages us? And that's, that's where the real hard work begins. Uh, yeah, Carter. Yeah. Yeah. Again, those are texts that get used by all three camps, right? So like the the Luke 16 passage right is the, the rich man and Lazarus story right where Lazarus is taken into Abraham's bosom the rich man is, you know awakes in hell. I heard 10,000 sermons on this growing up. And what you know, how do we how do we read that? The, some of the ways that I think are fascinating, one of them, again, from one of the Cappadocian fathers like Gregory, is that that story about the, the rich man and Lazarus is to see whether or not we would go and do what Abraham doesn't do. Hmm. So that there's a great, you know, remember Abraham says there's a great gulf fixed between you and me and I can't go to you and you can't come to me. And the other Gregory of the Cappadocian says, that's precisely what God did for us. Why wouldn't we do it for others? So that text, right, can be read to affirm any one of the, of the models. And then you have, what was the other one you asked me about? Oh, yeah, yeah, first Peter 3, Preaching in Hell, right? Um, again, all three models. The, the, the people... You're gonna get, in most of options A and B, mostly what people are going to say is that hell there is not hell, it's the place of the dead. That it's not the place of damnation, right? So they would just say that text is not relevant to this discussion because it's not really about hell. Same thing with the, in the creed where we say that he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. There are lots of theologians who would say that is not a reference to the place of damnation, it's a place where the dead abide, right? and certainly in a kind of strictly historical grammatical sense, that's right. Theologically, I, that's a different conversation. But, yeah, I mean, I think the, the Model 3 readings would be that that is what Christ has done. He has plundered hell. So like in the Orthodox Church, they, one of the things that they will celebrate on Holy Saturday and Easter is the plundering of hell, the, what they call the harrowing of hell where Christ goes. There, there are beautiful icons that you, you can find easily enough um, with a Google search where it shows Christ in hell picking the mother and father of us all, Adam and Eve, up out of hell. And it represents Christ saving hell. But then within that tradition, there's still division about what the icon means. Is he bringing the dead back to life or is he bringing the damned to blessing? And... Christians disagree about
0: that. Uh, yes, sir. Frederick Buechner has a great line to that, to that and then he talks about the creed. Mm. And that it's, a, it's that line that we always just glance right over, that Jesus descended to the dead. And he says, Jesus Christ of all people, in hell of all places. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. i will preach. Yes, sir. Um, Which of the three models do you lean towards and why? Why? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that that's... Not, nobody cares about that. <laughs> Just. <laughs> Just say the
0: second one and move on.
1: Yeah, the second one. It's the one you already all believe. Yeah, um, one or three, depending on what we're talking about. Um, two can't be right. Um, I mean, I'm glad there are Christians who believe it. I, I really am, and I think that I don't. I don't want to squash it, but it can't be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. And the, some of it depends on the day of the week for me. Some of it depends on what we're talking about. Um, I, I did a lot of reading a few weeks ago about the Holocaust, and that pushes me one way, right? Um, so some of it just depends on what's in front of me. Yeah, one that you like like that you, I mean, I guess like one that you want to be more toward. Oh, I mean, I hope three is right. I hope three is right. And I'm going to be kind of sore if it isn't, right? Like, I, I don't, the, I mean, I, I think there's a way in which, because here, here's here's the bottom line. I, it was a terrible book, and I'm in no way recommending it. But the Love Wins book, ultimately, who who wrote that? No, stop it right now. But what it did was, I say it was a terrible book because, get raised a very serious subject in a not very serious way. And that's really problematic. Don't, don't do that. Um, but anyway, the, but the truth of the matter is, either God gets what God wants or he doesn't. And at the end of the day, either God wants something and he gets it, or he wants something and he doesn't get it. And I much more want to be, my instincts are, I want to be with the people who say God gets what he wants. I don't want to be in a place where I'm saying God can't get what he wants because that means his promises are all conditional and they're conditional on me. And that just can't be right. That can't be right. I mean, that cuts against the grain of everything in scripture, not just salvation by grace, but everything about our existence. I mean, we didn't ask to be created. We didn't ask to be created under these conditions. We didn't, I mean, no, nothing fundamental about our reality is anything we chose. And we're terrible choosers anyway. <laughs> and that's not even talking about being sinners, right? We're just bad at it. And then that we're sinners on top of that. And then to be loaded with the responsibility of my own eternal destiny when I didn't have a choice to be or not to be, or to be a certain kind of person or another kind of person. And, I mean, that's just, that cannot be right. But I don't wanna lose touch with what I choose does matter and how I live does matter, right? And I don't wanna ever lose touch with that. So it's tough, I mean, it's difficult. Uh, Let's get a couple others in first and then we'll come back, yeah. Yeah, the, I've got, yeah, that's a great question, and I get, I get it a lot. Here. Yeah, so the question is, yeah, sure. The, correct me if I'm misrepresenting you, but it seems to be the question is, it'd be great if we could all really have different opinions and still get along, but what do you do with the fact that different opinions have consequences? So what if someone believes in purgatory and then therefore doesn't actually try to live the life of faith because they just keep delaying the, the formation? God will eventually help me. And what does that do to a community? What does that do to people who are trying to live together? Uh, The good and bad news is, well, let me, it's kind of, the good is the bad, the bad news is the good news, and the good news is the bad news, is that I don't think there is much of a relationship between what people believe and how they actually live. I think there should be, (laughs) but I don't think there actually is. Like, I, I think there is, we are such contradictory creatures Right? And I think that there are people who you would think from what they say they believe that they would be doing this all the time, but they've never done that and they will never do that. Right? It's, just, it's just, it's weird. I mean, you would think that if someone believes, this is why arguments like, so one of the arguments against any kind of universalism and against any kind of double predestination is that if you believe that God's will is what matters, and or you believe that everybody will be saved in the end, why would you ever evangelize? And that sounds really smart until you take two minutes to look at the history of the Christian tradition and realize that evangelistic movements happened in those groups too. So it obviously doesn't mean that, right? I mean, there are plenty of Calvinists who are evangelistic. I can't get them out of my Twitter feed, no matter what I do, right? So like the, there just isn't that kind of one-to-one straight line relationship. Right, so people who believe you know, whatever about hell, you might think, well, then that would mean they would act like this. But it doesn't, it doesn't translate. Like, that's not actually how it works in the world.
0: Sorry.
1: Yeah. You specifically know somebody tells I'm talking Yeah, I would say, I mean, I, honestly, my response to that would be, I wouldn't be so sure about purgatory with that kind of attitude, something like that. <laughs> I wouldn't take it seriously, because that's not serious. Like, when somebody talks to you like that, that's nonsense. Right? That's nonsense. Like, the, the idea that you can just keep delaying it, right, is silly. And it's a sign that he's using his belief to cover something else, or she. I'm assuming it's a he. No woman's that stupid, right? <laughs> so the, they're, they're using a belief in purgatory to deflect from something else. Yeah. Let me get other people in first, and then I'll come back to you. Unless there is no other people. Oh, yeah? How do the first two models reconcile? Evil as privation with God being all in all? Um, Not all. Evil evil as privation, meaning evil is not a thing. It's not a reality in itself. It's the absence of good. And God being all in all in the end. So in the second model, God isn't all in all in the end. He's all in all that he redeemed. But he's not all in all. So they have to read those texts in a very weak way. Right? In the first, God is all in all because his justice and his mercy are both fully enacted. And the evil as privation matters if you make the argument that evil is not eternal and can't be and so has to end at some point. Right, But other than that, I don't know that it does in terms of whether or not you hold these accounts. Uh, maybe I'm just missing something, but I don't, I don't think I see any reason why I think you could hold that and hold to evil as probation and hold either one of these models. I think the real question is what does it mean when we say God is all in all? Right? So, in the third model, God is all in all is it taken in a very strong sense. All means all. Right? In the second, it does not mean all. Right? It means all the redeemed. In the first, it means all, but it, it's diff- it applied differently. The, the, the redeemed enjoy it one way, and the damned suffer it another way. Oh Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So again, you're going to get a whole range of answers. Right? So Did you guys going to hear the question? Unreached people groups. Where do people who haven't heard the gospel fall right, in this conversation? So a lot of people in Model 1 are going to say, well, so uh, someone like Calvin, who's such a warm heart, he, he will say, essentially, if you didn't hear the gospel in your lifetime, it's because God didn't want you to. God could have gotten somebody there to witness to you if he wanted to, and he didn't. So, I mean, that's the, that's the short of it. So there's, there's that kind of argument, which, I mean, I'm being a little flippant about it, but the argument would essentially be that if people don't hear, they're damned, right? And there are some people in option two that would say the same thing, but not because God doesn't want it, but because we failed, right? We failed to get to them, and therefore they are lost, and then, of course, in this model, it would be some version of, well, the gospel will get to them maybe after death, but it will get to them. But the, there are people, I think in all three models, I need to think about this a little more, but I think there are people in all three models who would say, those who don't hear the gospel are judged on the light they have. So they, if they are responding to what they do know, then that is taken as righteousness. And I, I'm pretty sure I can think of people who in all three models would say that, right? So the, they're, they're unreached with the gospel, but God has another way of saving them, and that has to do with the, their their faithfulness to conscience and, and love of neighbor and all that. Does that make sense? Is so that like the statues to unknown gods kind of idea? Yeah, and Romans 1 and 2, right, with the conscience passages and the, what, what God has put in the heart of people, Ecclesiastes, Eternity Language. Yeah, so, I mean, th- th- there are lots of texts that these people appeal to. Yeah. Uh, yes, ma'am? So, if we're taking well, is it still like... Well, don't do that so quick! Well, if one were, yeah. If, if, if it were to be how things happen, is it still our responsibility as Christians to go out and teach- Oh, absolutely, well, yeah. I'm Yeah, the best answer I've ever heard to that. Is, ah, sorry. The question was, if Model 3 is true, are we still responsible to take the gospel to people? Why would we? The best response I've ever heard to that was, if you don't know the answer to that question, someone needs to bring the gospel to you. Because we. the point of it is, I mean, that's. A, I love that response, right? But... The point of it is, if God is alive in you, you love people. You don't try to win them to God because you're saving them from hell. You're trying to win them to God because you want them to know God. So why wouldn't you? Right? It'd be, Does that make sense? Right? So like the motivation is entirely different. Like You're not trying to, like this isn't a rescue effort in the sense that they're going to be damned. But you don't, again, people in this model will say you don't have to believe in hell in order to be motivated to witness to people. Right, you're yeah. you're motivated by God, not hell. Oh, it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I guess the the argument from here would be, you can be just as motivated about missions if your goal is I want them to know Jesus, as is as you would be if your goal was I don't want them to be damned. Oh yeah. Okay, so uh on that uh, that's brilliant, uh is 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 there a place where all three of these can be equally true uh, to the person who's posing the question? Uh, I've been reading a lot of uh uh Father Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan prior yeah. to, uh. I know this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To ask questions mm-hmm. Than just yeah, I'm I'm double-minded about that. So there's a part of me that says, yes, I, I definitely think that we're all on some kind of spiritual journey and being formed and being led toward. Christ-likeness and that different beliefs work in our lives in different ways at different times. I mean, yes, I think that's right. I I think that for sure. And I I can see someone, like I said already, I mean, I think depending on what I'm reading and who I'm talking to and what I'm thinking about, like each of these models is attractive to me in a different way. So yes, I agree with that. But I, I don't think Christians can just say, I don't think we can just settle with the question. Like, I think we wanna be people who ask the question. And I think we wanna be people who come to answers humbly and modestly, but the goal isn't just to have questions, right? Like, that that seems to me to be kind of pseudo-spiritual. I think I would be perfectly comfortable with, well, I think I would. I think I am. I think there are people in my life like this who hold, to one, let's say the three doctrines we're talking about that hold to a doctrine, right? Let's say they hold a doctrine to that I've said, I just don't think you can. I would go to a church pastored by someone who held that view if I felt like they lived with it in a way that was godly, right? But I don't know that I would go to be pastored by someone who says, well, the important thing is that we're asking questions about hell. Like, I think at some point you have to to say something, right? When you're preaching, you have to say. So for me, this is why I'm going to end up in one or three. Because when I'm preaching, I want to say, like what I said today, the gospel is God is coming for you, not you are going for God. Well, if I believe too, I can't say that. Right? If I believe too, ultimately the gospel is you can go to God if you want to. And I I can't say that. So I I want people to have enough of an answer that they can actually preach something, that they can say, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So so, um, uh, Gandhi and uh, Mother Teresa both had the same response, basically, when asked, should I convert to your religion? Mm. And they said, well, what are you now? And whatever the response is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think, I think I would say, what I would argue for is discernment in different cases. So I think there are, I have seen a couple times in my life people that converted to Christianity from other religions that I think were, I think their decision was actually rash and really destructive. But there are also people that I've seen convert that I think, good, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm glad for them that they came to believe the gospel. So I I don't want to say that there can't be conversion from other traditions or from not not having faith at all to having faith. I I don't want to say that. Um, But I also don't want to to say that all conversion is good conversion, right? So one of the problems you have in the Middle Ages is that Christians were stealing babies from Muslim families and baptizing them. Don't do that. Like, that's not a good idea. Like, it's not. And, and but remember, what they believe is if you're baptized, then the grace of God is at work in you. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be saved, but it guarantees that grace is, a, is alive in you. And so they could do it in good conscience, but that's a terrible way to convert people, right? To and, share the love of God with your. Neighbor. Right, share the love of God. Let me take your child and baptize it. Um, so I, I mean, I, I want to say something a little stronger than Roar does, right? I I, I want a, a heftier sense of. I think what I'm saying is true. I mean, I believe that the gospel is God is coming for you. I believe that, and that forces me theologically into one of these two camps ultimately, right? I don't want to back off of that, but I want to hold it modestly. I want to be humble enough about it to say we we don't want to kill all the twos just because one and three are in a better position <laughs> theologically. So, yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, well, you don't have to. Well, it's a question. Yeah. well I, uh, this could take a while. Um, I, think, I think you care about hell. Let's start with the pastoral reasons. Um, as a pastor, I've encountered lots of people who are tormented by fear of hell. Lots of people. Who grew up in some kind of environment where hell was, was preached hot, as we say. And... Um, I mean, people who have nightmares, who go, who are on medicine, I mean, lots of people. So one reason you would do it is because you've got the pastoral responsibility to these people who are afraid. The, I remember one of the times that that happened, there was a, a woman, she came and we had a conversation. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, she was obviously really upset about hell and we talked for a couple of hours and The next day, she uh, had—we no need to get into the details, but she had made a gigantic life decision in relation to her family, all based off that conversation, because she'd been waiting to figure out what she believed about hell to make this decision in her life that she knew was going to be so costly. And I had no idea when we had the conversation. So it, it can matter to people. It isn't esoteric for everybody by any means. The second thing is, as a theologian, I'm responsible to do it. I have I have to talk about it. I have to read about it, and I have to write about it and I'm serving churches and ministers who are being formed for ministry who have to be taught to how to read the scriptures that reference it and how to pastor the people who are struggling with it and how to engage people who um, need to think through it theologically so you know that it's my job literally then as someone who's a Christian, I know, and here this is more of an evangelistic answer, one of the major reasons people in our culture reject Christianity is because of what they think we believe about hell. So another reason to do it is to know what Christians actually believe and and to know and to be able to say to people. Like, I, I, I know it can feel a little overwhelming when you start to see how many variables there are, but part of the reason that I've done it this way is that I... I think a lot, of us, and I could be wrong, but my suspicion is a lot of us think that the Christian doctrine of hell is pretty straightforward and everybody thinks the same thing. And part of what I hope you leave here tonight thinking is, well, that's not right, right? Christians are all over the board and, and I have no idea how to keep up with all of it. That's good, right? Because that means that we don't know everything and we don't even know everything about the stuff we do know. And, so I, and I think that's important. It's important evangelistically. The final reason I would say it is... I would say, I think it's important in terms of discipleship. Because I, like I said already, I think when we're talking about hell, really, we're talking about God. Mm-hmm. And whatever you're saying about hell really is about what you think about God yeah. and what you think God is like and what you think God can get done. And I'm interested in that question much more than I'm interested in the question about hell. right? I'm much more interested in getting to that. But hell is a, the conversation about hell is a way of getting to that. A way of of getting people to so so for instance i think a lot of our beliefs about god are hidden from us we don't know what we actually believe about god so when we talk about hell some of the beliefs about god we don't even know we have are coming out so one of the advantages of talking about hell is it's an indirect way of getting at what people actually believe about god and so for instance to go back to the woman i talked about that i had the conversation with what turned out in our conversation is that she was ultimately afraid of God. She wasn't afraid of hell. She thought she was afraid of hell, but she wasn't. She was afraid of God. And the moment she realized that, right, it freed her, and she made her choice. And that's what interests me ultimately, right, is that as a, as a teacher, I want to use this kind of conversation ultimately to get to that. Right? I could give more, but that, that's, that's a start. Yeah. Yeah, sure.
0: <laughs> renting out a brewery and having a <laughs> conversation about it. Yeah, I'm not going to stop for Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, what are tangible things, because there is a reality of a community right next door where I am, that would be a huge problem, and no unity happens at the end of that. You know what I mean? Like, what are things
1: you see that are wrong? I think, by far, the most important thing is a leadership model that creates an environment in which people feel comfortable doing that, right? Like you have to have men and women who model it for you and then create the space for it to happen, right? Like I I think, so for instance, if you went into a community where the pastor or pastors were fundamentalist about whatever, and then you tried to have this kind of conversation, you just destroy the community or get yourself destroyed, right? Don't do that, right? Like only do the, only have conversations like these in communities where space is made for it. Like the there are you have to people can only hear what they can hear. And you can't force conversations like these. Like if they happen, they, they're beautiful and wonderful, but you can't can't kind of press it and make make it happen because it will it'll become about a thousand other things before you know it, right? I think some of the things, some of the practices that I think really cultivate that Are well it's what I believe most about preaching I think preaching has to do two things at once at least one is it has to proclaim the gospel has to talk about God in ways that actually move people toward God even though again I think the gospel is about God coming toward you I think because of the kind of creatures we are the more we realize that God is actually coming to us and that this isn't on me I'm freed up to actually go to God. I mean, that's the the paradox, right? I'm able to pursue him precisely when I know he's chasing me. But that has to be married with the kind of humility and modesty that I don't do well at all, which is that I'm struggling with a truth that's larger than I am, right? So I want to speak the truth, and this goes back to what I was saying to you, I want to speak the truth in ways that are bold enough and direct enough that people can respond to it. And at the same time, speak it in such a way that everybody recognizes this is bigger than any of us. Right? And I think when you do that, the community, ha- that's what creates the space. Right? Now you have space. Like You're not just saying anything goes. Because that's not a church. I mean, if, if it's just anybody can believe anything and say anything, that's great. This is not a church. Right? Like that's, You can have that space. right? But the church is a place where the gospel is proclaimed boldly, where we say this about God and this about the life of faith but we have to do that in ways that make it clear that at the end of the day, there's more going on than I can say. Right. And so I, I think that's crucial. Once you have that, then you just, you, you have to have the kind of people that will make time for events like these and to read together and have, com- you know, conversations. Like I think a lot of that can happen pretty organically once, once the, the kind of spark has been sparked. in in the community.
0: This right here might be our last question.
1: Yeah, so sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, I'll give you several of different kinds. Um, So, one, I would read George MacDonald. So, read, he has fantasy fiction stories like Lilith and Fantasties. They're not tremendous, I mean, they're good, but they're theologically rich, and and they speak to this issue in pretty profound ways, so I would read that. He has a collection... Of unspoken sermons it's in King James English, so it's kind of off-putting, but if you read the Sermon on Justice, he has a, a, a sermon he has two sermons you should read. one is on justice and one is on the consuming fire. Um, I would read those, even though they're, they may be a little off-putting because of the English, it's worth fighting, fighting through that. So I'd read George MacDonald for sure. Um, there's, a, there's a book by um, Gregory MacDonald. I can't remember the title of the book. Um, Yeah, Gregory MacDonald, though, on hell. If you just Google Gregory MacDonald hell, he has a little book that's pretty accessible, and and that's a a good way into the conversation, and he's a good scholar. His name is actually Robin Perry. Gregory MacDonald is a play on Gregory of Nyssa and George MacDonald, who are two famous universalists. Um, There's a new book that's just about to come out from an Orthodox scholar, David Bentley Hart, on universalism that will be really hard to read, but really powerful too. Um, so that's really kind of demanding. There's a blog, uh, I think it's called well, it's Father Al Kimmel, who's an Orthodox priest, Eclectic Orthodoxy, is a blog that, I mean, he, all of his posts are about this issue in one way or another. So I, I would definitely check that out. Um, I have one or two articles on there at some point. <laughs> Um, but there's good stuff, too, and it's, it's, worth, it's worth a look. Those are the ones that come to mind. I mean, there, there's a lot. I mean, I would say if you're feeling really adventurous, dig around in Gregory of Nyssa. Um, St. Vladimir Seminary has a, l- a lot of little paperbacks um, that they publish. They're like, I want to say $9 um, that are pretty contemporary translate they contemporary translations, pretty readable, um, of some of the ancient texts. If you're feeling adventurous, I'd jump on, jump on that, so. And then email me, I got a lot more, but That that would start there. Awesome. We have to close down
0: tonight. We said we'd be done by nine and it's 9.01, so we have overstayed our welcome. Um, thank you, Dr. Green.